The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And just uh, a little word before I begin this message today. Uh, some weeks ago, I told you about walking Taylor Mountain, which is something that I do quite often, about four or five times a week. And um, on one of those trips, I got to thinking about sermons and what I needed to preach. And uh, today I'm starting the outline that I told you about that I got on Taylor Mountain. And uh, it's going to take five sermons to get through this outline on this passage of Scripture. But it's a very important passage. And uh, as I said, I, I dictated to my iPhone the points of this message as I walked down the mountain. So I've had some time to think about it. And hopefully we'll be able to present the Word of God to you over these next few weeks that take up the uh, exposition of these last few verses in the book of Matthew. And these are, of course, the last words that are penned by Matthew in the Gospel account, and his Gospel account of Jesus' life. And they contain two of the most important verses in Scripture, which is verses 19 and 20, that are known to us as the Great Commission. And I suppose that if you are uh, a Baptist, uh, especially an independent Baptist, that you have heard messages on the Great Commission, on these two particular verses, perhaps even hundreds of messages on them, and... Uh, we're told that those two verses are the mandate of the Lord's church. And, of course, that's true. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe that the church is local and visible or whether you believe it's universal and invisible. Still, just about everybody that talks about these verses speaks of it as the mandate of the Lord's church. And it would be easy for us to look at the Great Commission and to put a very strong emphasis, as most pastors and evangelists do, on the very first word that we find in verse number 19, where Jesus said, Go, go ye therefore. And there's a lot of emphasis put on that word as being the main thing that we see in the commission. But that's not actually the main word that's there. It's actually the word teach. And we don't see the distinction in the English language, but the emphasis is actually there in the original language in the Greek. We never want to diminish the word go, but we also want to be fair to the entire commission that God has given. And the word teach is the operative term in the Great Commission. Now, what I would like to do in this message and those following is to close out the book of Matthew by taking this text, just like we have all the others that came before, and I want to break it down and cover all of these verses as, as best that I can, and hopefully we'll show you some things that you might not have thought about before, some significant things about these particular verses. So if you look beginning in verse number 16, and you, you can remain seated there today, verse number 16, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even 
unto the end of the world. Now, the title of the message today is In the Service of the King. And I'd like you to look at verse number 18 just briefly because we will talk about this more in depth later. But there Jesus said, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. And with respect to the gospel, I know that you're familiar with what Paul said in Romans 1.16 where he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So we have a powerful gospel. We preach a powerful gospel but that word power in Romans 1.16 is not the same word that we see in Matthew 28, verse number 18. There the word power means authority. That Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. And what we have there is just a remarkable statement of Christ's deity. I'll remind you that in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, that he starts with the genealogy of a king. And he shows us that Jesus is descended from David, who was Israel's greatest king, and that ancestry of Christ becomes very prominent throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Now, at his birth, he was worshipped as a king. Matthew is the only writer that tells us about the visit of the wise men who came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And there in Matthew, we find the story of King Herod, one who, of course, also was a king, who tried to kill him at his birth because he felt that Jesus was a rival to his throne. And so while Jesus was still just a baby, Herod tried to kill him in a sweep of infanticide in which he murdered hundreds of innocent children. So Matthew began with Jesus the king, and he ends in this passage with the final authority, the great statement of his authority as sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And so if Jesus is the king, he is to be exalted as a king. And who is a king that doesn't have subjects? And who is a king that doesn't exercise dominion over those subjects? And so in these last verses of Matthew, Jesus gave the greatest command to his subjects, that he gave him the, or them the orders that they were to fulfill in his kingdom. They were to make subjects, and it was their duty as subjects to go out and make other people subjects of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, or as we find it in Scripture, to make disciple, disciples of all nations. Now, in the last message, I gave you the reason that Jesus wants disciples. And it's not because he's unhappy. It's not because that he is just, uh, just taken aback by the unbelief of the multitudes. No, he wants disciples for worship. He wants disciples that will glorify him. And so the salvation of men and women and children is for the recognition of the love, the mercy, and the grace of God that couldn't have been shown in any other way except that Jesus would come and give his life as a ransom for our sins. And I explained that the uh, Great Commission, or the Great Commission, is the one that the Father gave the Son. And that was when that they agreed that the Son would become incarnate, that He would become flesh, and that He would die for the sins of His people. And the Gospel Commission that we read here in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is actually secondary to that commission. That commission is the greatest one because without it, this commission that we find here could not exist at all. 
there has to be some good news to tell. And the good news is what Jesus Christ came into this world to do in offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. And the good news is that we can recognize him as our king and we can live forever in his kingdom. Now that is the commission given to his disciples to go and tell what Jesus came to do. And it begins with the men who were originally chosen for this purpose. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called the disciples, the apostles, those original men. And then after his resurrection, he issued this call to them to meet him in a place where he would give them the commission of the kingdom. Now that's what I want to talk to you about first today. And that is the engagement. The engagement. And what is the engagement? Well, we're not talking about an engagement to a marriage, although building the church as the bride of Christ is certainly a product of what Jesus called the disciples to do. But the engagement here, rather, is a meeting. It's an appointment that Jesus set, a time and a place for uh, these disciples to come and meet with him to receive that commission. And he gave it to them as an advance appointment at the time that he arose from the dead. Now, if you look back at verse number 10, Jesus said to the women at the tomb, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. And so on this resurrection morning, there was an appointment scheduled, and the women were told to go and tell the disciples they were to go into Galilee, and there they would meet Jesus. Now, we know that on that very same night that Jesus met with them, you remember how that there were ten of those disciples and they were gathered in a room for fear and they'd locked themselves in, they'd closed the windows and the doors and Jesus miraculously appeared to them, just materialized in the midst of them and so he met with them on that night. And then eight days later he did the same and they, the eleven were there at that time and he met with them at that particular time. So we know that, that Jesus had met with them before and so this appearance here that he scheduled had to be after those appearances and after those talks that he had with them. There wasn't any time for them to go to Galilee and then come back on that first night. Galilee was 70 miles away. And so the command of verse number 10 was to set up a future meeting and it was for this particular purpose that he would give them the kingdom commission. Now, a few weeks ago, Brother Paul Lostness uh, gave a presentation of his and Cindy's trip to Israel. Gary and I made that same trip a few years ago, and we saw many sites that are claimed to be the places where the events in Jesus' life took place. Uh, we saw the same landscape that Jesus would have seen, and we walked in the same places where they said that Jesus walked. But I've also explained that many of those sites in Israel are just guesswork. That nobody really knows the exact spots where these things took place. But in the Middle Ages, there were different branches of Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, uh, Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, Coptic Catholics, and so on, took these places and they built uh, churches and shrines and monasteries on con and convents on those places that they felt were the official sites. And those are the places that people visit today when they go to the Holy Land. The Mount of the Beatitudes is one of those places. That's where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a very beautiful church that's been built there. There's also a Franciscan convent that's on that particular site. And this one, where Jesus met the disciples, the commission, 
Nobody really knows exactly where that happened. Now, the text only says that it was on a mountain. And much of Jesus' ministry was associated with mountains. Some were good-sized mountains. Some were just low hills or some were in the plains of mountains. And some are confused about this particular meeting, about where it actually did take place. And they think that this is the same one that we see described in Acts chapter 1. But we know that it can't be Acts chapter 1 because there Jesus met with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. And that's the very same place where the Bible says that Jesus will return in power and glory and set his feet upon the earth. And that's when he's going to establish a kingdom here on the earth. There are some who think that this is Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is at the southern end of Galilee. It's also known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And there is where the Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholics have built monasteries uh, uh, to commemorate that. But the only problem is the Bible does not say that Mount Tabor is the place where the transfiguration took place or, nor is it, does it say that it is the place where the commission of Jesus Christ was given. So I want to tell you what I think about it. I can't pinpoint the location for you, but I think that there might be some special significance attached to a particular place. That the disciples... Were, were, were all Galileans. They were all familiar with the, with the locale. And so I think this particular place is a place where Jesus had other important meetings. So it occurs to me that when Jesus gave the manifesto of the kingdom, it was at a certain place. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the manifesto of his kingdom. And it doesn't seem to me that there would be a better place for Jesus to give a kingdom commission than to return to that very same mountain where he gave the kingdom manifesto. Oh, he gave that commission as, uh, in his authority uh, over the kingdom. And the manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, is about life in his kingdom. And so my theory is that the engagement actually took place at that place where he preached the Sermon on the Mountain. And if you disagree with me on that, then that's okay because... Neither your salvation or mine is dependent on whether we get the answer to this question correct. But another question that we have to ask, and, and certainly a far more important one, is why did Jesus tell them to go into Galilee? Why go to a mountain in Galilee? I mean, they're already gathered in Jerusalem. They're already there. They're all meeting together in a locked room on that very night when he was resurrected from the dead. Then he met them again on the eighth day. So why does he tell them to go into Galilee 70 miles away before they receive this commission? Well, I think one reason might be that he wanted to teach them a lesson, that following him was not going to be easy, that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not often a convenient thing, that God's not really too interested in whether you are comfortable in your Christian life, God's not really interested in whether you have everything that the world has to offer you, whether you're going to have riches or those kinds of things, because God never promised anybody that they would have wealth for following him. He never promised that this would be a fun thing to do as far as the world sees it, that there are games that are involved in this. In fact, preaching the gospel and telling others about Christ is often the hardest thing that you'll ever do in all of your life. It's the hardest thing on the flesh that you'll ever try to do. And the reason that there are so many Christians that resist giving the gospel to others is because our flesh doesn't like to do it. 
We want to hide the light. We want to obscure the light. We don't want to give the light to people. Our flesh does not like to do this. And whether you admit it or not, you all know that there are times when you have been embarrassed about the gospel of Christ, when you kept your mouth shut, when you should have spoke about Him, because you were afraid, because there's some problem, there are circumstances in which you clam up and you will not talk about Christ. Now, we've all had the problem of frozen mouth syndrome. And we've been called the frozen chosen, haven't we? And that's because there is fear, there is embarrassment, there is avoidance of the commission. But friends, this is an appointment by God. And if we will just obey and be ready to speak for Him, Christ promises that He will meet us in the place where we witness for Him. Now, when you speak for Christ, do you ever feel that He's missing? Well, He's not missing. He promised that He would never leave us or forsake us. He promised to bless you for the obedience of talking to others about Him. And these disciples were certainly blessed. The commission was a tremendous blessing because they were chosen to it. And nobody but them was told to meet Jesus to receive this commission. Now, a little bit later, I'm going to explain that to you. How did the commission actually come to us? But for now, I want you to keep this point in mind, that Jesus told the eleven to meet him. Specifically, he told the eleven, and you see that in verse number 16. But at the same time, if only the eleven were going to be there, then why did he say, go to Galilee? Why would they need to do that? Well, this is important because Jesus chose Galilee because there were many believers there. The greatest reception that he had in all of his ministry was in Galilee. He had a huge following in Galilee. In fact, the disciples told him, why don't you stay in Galilee? Why don't you stay here? Because if you go down to Jerusalem, if you go into Judea, they're going to kill you there. And so they warned him about going there. But we know that Jesus had his own engagement. That Jesus had his own appointment, he had his own commission, and staying in Galilee, that might have been all right for the disciples, but that was not all right for him. He must go to Jerusalem because that's where kings are made. Kings sit in Jerusalem, that's the place of David's throne, and that's where Jesus would be. And so there he's going to establish his authority, and Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem to establish a throne. But for now... For now, in the resurrection, the appointment is at Galilee. And I think that's highly significant because in the interim between the time that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and the time that he comes back again, the ministry of the church is primarily Galilean. Well, let me explain that. The ministry of the church is Galilean. And do you know why? Because the Bible says or calls, designates Galilee as being Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee was filled with mixed races. And that was a sign that the church that would grow during this interim period from the time that Jesus left the world until he comes back again is going to be mostly a Gentile church. There would be few Jews in it. There would be some. These disciples were all purebred Jews. But very soon, the gospel outgrew the Jewish response. And so the church became primarily Gentile. So I think that I'm safe in the assumption that the eleven are not the only ones that were there on the mountain. There were many other converts that were there. 
And if we wanted a parallel to this passage where Jesus said, meet me there, I think that we could go to 1 Corinthians 15 in verse number 6. There it says that there were over 500 people at one time that saw Jesus in his resurrected body. And I think that's the appearance in Galilee. That's the place where there are many followers, and that's most likely the place of 1 Corinthians 15, 6. So this is not the ascension in Acts chapter 1. The language of Acts doesn't support that. And the commission was repeated there in Acts chapter 1. And it's very significant again that it was to those 11 and those 11 alone. And that's important for the identification of who received the commission and why that God particularly gave it to them. So the convenience of meeting in Jerusalem was passed over because the service of the king is going to be a hard one. The service of the king is going to be a long journey in your life. And so the disciples would not find it easy going. They were always targets of the enemy. They were beaten. They were thrown in jail. James, who was the brother of John, had a very short career as an apostle as he was the first one to be martyred. And that's the way it was. The commission guaranteed a hard life, not an easy one. That's not what we hear preached today. We hear preached that Christianity is going to be easy for you, that God is going to take care of everything and everything's going to be just swell, just fine in your life. Now, if you, if you need to know more about that, just read what happened to the apostles. He, uh, the, the commission guaranteed a hard life, not an easy one. When Paul saw the resurrected Lord at a, at a later time, he certainly felt the brunt of his gospel preaching that he was called to do. And so you look at his experiences of stoning, of being shipwrecked, of being thrown to the lions and being in perils of robbers. And then late in his life, he wrote to Timothy and said, Yea, and all that live godly in Jesus Christ shall suffer persecution. And that is a far cry from the gospel presentation that we hear today that says, Come to Jesus because he has a wonderful plan for your life. No, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your afterlife. And becoming a Christian might send you there in a hurry. So the commission was not going to be easy. Following Christ is not for the whimsical of heart. Christ's own commission was terrifyingly difficult. It led to a horrible death of the cross. And do you know what Jesus promised his disciples when he called them? He said, it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. His promise was that that what the world did to him, it would do to them. And maybe you don't feel that so much living in America today. Maybe you don't feel any persecution and hardness because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm telling you, it's coming. One day it's going to come here. America has been a great reprieve for Christianity for about 250 years, but you can, you can count on this. It's coming to an end. So what could the disciples expect? What did following Jesus actually mean to them? What does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? How is it going to affect you? Well, I'd like you to turn to John 21 for just a minute, if you would. And here is a, another post-resurrection of Jesus. This time he appeared to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And there's an exchange that took place between Jesus and Peter. Jesus questioned him about his love for him. And if you look at verse number 18, Jesus told Peter what was in store for him. 
John 21, verse number 18. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee, whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Do you see what Jesus says to Peter? He said the gospel is a commitment that will seal your death. Jesus said, when you were young, you went where you wanted to go. But when you get old now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you preach it, you're going to be caused to do something that you don't want to do. The gospel is going to cause you to be taken. Your arms are going to be stretched out and you'll be carried where you don't want to go. So in verse 19, Jesus told Peter that the reason he told him this was to signify that death by which he would glorify God. And there are many Bible commentators that agree on this, that what Jesus was talking about was crucifixion, that Peter was going to be crucified. Tradition says that he was crucified upside down. I don't know if that tradition is true, but I do believe this, that Jesus was talking about crucifixion here. And what he's trying to tell Peter, and he's telling us today, that the gospel of Christ is not going to be easy, that you can expect this. You know, I was asked by someone not long ago, is it excusable to deny Christ if the life of your family is threatened? And I think maybe that you need to ask an apostle that question. Perhaps you need to even ask Jesus Christ that question. What if they had said to him, what if they'd said to Jesus, the Romans had said to him, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to take your mother, and we're going to take your brethren, and we're going to kill them if you don't stop telling people that you are the Messiah. What do you think that Jesus would have done? Now for us, that's a hard question. But I think that we find in that question whether we are actually able to obey the command that we are to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. It's exceedingly difficult for us, and that's why you need a Savior. No, the commission is not easy. Your flesh, your mind, your will is set against it. And it's one of the reasons that the Bible says that you must crucify your flesh. You have to put your flesh down, or you are never going to do what God has called you to do. You're not going to follow Christ in the commission unless you're willing to crucify self. So Jesus here, and in Scripture, he never promised a wonderful plan for this life. What he promised that we would receive is hatred. And he said you're going to be thrown out of cities, and he told them you'll be thrown out of houses. There's going to be strife within your family. And that is not a great sales pitch for Christianity. Have you ever heard someone start out with that, with that, uh, uh, with, with that plead for people to get saved? You, did you start a gospel presentation this way? Trust Christ and you risk being ridiculed and beaten to death. Now, if you're determined that sales pitches save people, then you don't want to use that one. But do you know what else that Jesus said? He even said this, These bad things are going to happen to my followers... But what is that advantage that he offers? Matthew 10. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, 
but the spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. What I'm trying to tell you that if you go, Jesus promises to be there. That he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you there to suffer the abuse of it alone. He's going to be there. And when you go, you'll feel that presence of Christ because that's his promise. It's not a plan about a wonderful... It's not a, a wonderful plan for this life. That's not what he's talking about. But here's what he says about his wonderful plan. Matthew 19, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration... Now, in the regeneration, that means later... That means when the kingdom comes, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. So these men have a promise. Follow me, and you will be in my kingdom. Follow me, preach the gospel of Christ, and there will be a special place for you in my kingdom when it comes, and everything that you've lost, everything that you've given up for the cause of Christ will be restored to you a hundredfold. That's the promise that he gave. And, he says, you will get everlasting life. So that's the engagement. It's to an appointed place, and they knew when they got there, that Jesus would be there. Now we go on to verse number 17. Verse 17 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now secondly, we see here the enthrallment. They worshipped him. Well, I think it's an interesting thing. Did you know that in the entire book of Matthew, that this is the only, only the second time, there's only one other time, that the, Matthew says the disciples worshipped him. That first time was the great display on the Sea of Galilee. There was a, there was a storm and, and the disciples were in a boat and they were rowing hard to make land. And Jesus came to them walking on the water and he stilled, stilled that storm and then the boat came to the land. The disciples got out of the boat and they worshipped him. And they said, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. Of all the other incidents of what Jesus did, the casting out of demons, the feeding of 5,000, feeding 4,000, healing the lame and the blind and raising the dead, this is the only other time that Matthew says they worshipped him. Others did. Remember the wise men? They worshipped him. Not only were they looking for a king, but they were also looking for God. And when they came to the house where Jesus was, they worshipped him. There was a leper that worshipped him. A Canaanite woman worshipped him. A man with a dead daughter worshipped him. It was significant then that here at the end of Matthew, it says that the disciples worshipped him. Well, at the beginning of Matthew and at the end, we see the kingship and we see his deity. That he came into the world as a king and as God and he proved that the worship of the wise men was exactly correct. And he did that by rising from the dead. And he showed his authority over heaven and earth by appearing to the disciples, and it says they worshipped him. And that is important. That is significant. Now, when we think of worship today, we think of singing. People think that singing, that's the worship. 
Some hold up their hands. And they think singing and holding up their hands, that's the symbol of worship. But if you think that singing and holding up your hands is worship, according to what this scripture says, then you are sorely mistaken. You have not captured the idea of worship as Matthew used it here. To him, worship was not raising your hands. It's not jumping up and down and clapping, and certainly it wasn't speaking gibberish. To him, worship was something else. Now, people look at the sign that's outside of our church with the man raising his hands, living for Jesus, that sign says, and to them, that is the symbol of worship. That is not what Matthew had in his mind at all. And here in this scripture, when it talks about worship, it has a very definite thing in mind. It has a, in mind falling to the knees, but not just staying on the knees. The next thing is to fall on the face and to stretch out fully prostrate. Prostrate means to stretch out full length on the ground. And so the disciples saw him, and they went down flat to the ground, face down, and that's the way that they worshiped. That's the actual meaning of this Greek word that's here. It's a picture of complete and total submission. When you stretch out and you're face down, that is the most helpless, defenseless position that you can be in. Go home and try that. Lay down on the floor. Somebody try it here if you want to and do a demonstration. Lay down on the floor, face down, and try to raise your arms and see how well that you can defend yourself. No, when you worshiped like this, you went down to a defenseless position. You were in total surrender, a sign of total surrender. I think Charles Wesley captured the thought in the song, Jesus, lover of my soul, when he said, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed, all my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. That is worship. Submission in helplessness to the one who is your God. Why does Matthew save worship for the last few verses that he wrote about Jesus' life? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, listen, by the resurrection from the dead. This is why it shows up here, the resurrection of the dead. Now the emphasis is that Jesus is a king descended from David and he is deity. And here is the great declaration that is signified by worship that Jesus is God. Can you mistake it? We see it again in verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He is God. Well, how do we know that from the word worship here? Why is it so significant that here Matthew mentions worship of Jesus Christ? Well, we have to remember who these men are. All of them were raised in Jewish homes. All of them had received instructions about worship. They knew what worship was. They received instruction about worship from the time that they were children. Now the Jews then did as they do now. They had a mezuzah that was put on the side of their doors and, and it, where you entered into your house, that mezuzah would be there and it contained the scriptures of Deuteronomy chapter 6. There it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, 
And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Those words were taken literally by the Jews. They taught scriptures to their children. They put those scriptures in a little holder on the doorpost of their houses. And today, if you go to Israel, you can see those. You can even see them on the side of a, of a, a room, a, a door going into a hotel room, a little mezuzah where they put the scriptures. Some of the men wear a leather box between their eyes that contain the scriptures. And who was Israel to worship? Who only were they to worship? Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So they worshipped no one but the Lord God. Now do you see the word Lord in caps in the verse? That means Jehovah God. That means no one else. They would prostrate themselves for no one but Jehovah God. So what does that mean? Well, Matthew saves it. And he emphasized that they saw him. All of these disciples saw him as Jehovah, the Lord God. They knew this. You don't worship anybody but the Lord. If they had forgot, forgotten all of the other commandments that were given, they would not forget this one. You do not worship anyone but the Lord your God. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And isn't that what Jesus said to the Jews? He said to them, he claimed to be God, and he said, do you stone me because I do good works? And they said, no, we're not stoning you for that. We're stoning you because you make yourself God. And you wonder if these mean, stubborn, lying, thieving priests and Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying, why is there so much trouble today with people understanding that Jesus claimed to be God? Jesus quoted the command to Satan. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now let me ask you this. Jesus was the perfect man, wasn't he? He was the perfect man. And so would he break this command if he wasn't God? Would he tell people to worship him as Lord God if he is not God? He is the perfect man. So yes, he is telling them, I am God. Now here, here's, here's what I want you to get out of this. Why it's important to your service in the commission. You have got to begin with worship. You're not going to serve the one that you will not worship. So I seriously doubt that Christians that barely drag themselves into a Sunday morning service for worship are going to do much serving God throughout the rest of the week. You are not going to serve the one that you don't worship. I like, I like the way a certain person put it. He said, worship God poorly and you will serve God poorly. Now you know something about the disciples? They didn't understand very much yet. They, they, they weren't expert theologians yet. They were still weak 
and we'll see it in just a moment. But they knew this, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power and glory, and that came by the resurrection of the dead. They knew this meant he must be worshipped. And so they started there. They worshipped him. And in less than 50 days, the Holy Spirit came and empowered them to carry out the commission. So let me tell you something, that if you start with worship, here's what will happen to you. You will end with the commission. If you worship, if you prostrate yourself spiritually, you're going to be prepared for the commission. It works that way. You slack off of your worship and you'll never do it. But then we come to this very strange part in the second part of that verse. Verse 17, but some doubted. There are some that doubted. And those three words, but some doubted, that gives commentators fits. Who is this that doubted? And they can't imagine that it would be the disciples that doubted, not with all they'd seen, not with all the previous post-resurrection appearances, not with doubting Thomas so thoroughly reprimanded by Jesus. So they had their explanations or their conjectures. Some doubted. And they say, well, some doubted because they saw Jesus from a long way off and they weren't sure that it was him. But when they got closer to him, then they knew that it was him. But that doesn't seem to be right to me. They worshipped, but then some doubted. And that sounds like that we have a mixture here, that one is following upon the other. Others say that it wasn't the disciples at all that doubted, that there were more people that were there, there were over 500 others that were there, and among them there were some that doubted. But it doesn't look to me as if Matthew is talking about them. Oh, he starts in verse number 16 talking about the eleven. And I'll make the point later that throughout the passage, he's always pointing to those eleven. That holds throughout. So the others that were there, they're not under consideration for doubt. They're not under consideration for worship. They are not under consideration even for the commission. This is about those eleven men. What's spoken here is about those eleven. And so you wonder, how do you put worship and doubt together for the eleven? And I think it shows the difficulty of always maintaining our focus. That sometimes the way in serving Christ becomes discouraging. Did they believe that Jesus is God? Yes, they believe that. Did they believe in the miracles and they saw miracles? Yes, they did. Did they worship Him? Yes, they did. Did they have an excuse to doubt Him? No, they didn't. But folks, that's the reality. None of them had suddenly lost their old nature and had that pulled out of them. None of them were free from the sins that were in their hearts. You look at Peter just a little bit later and the great man that he became, and you find the Apostle Paul having to ream him for hypocrisy. So can I say that you are never going to doubt? Can I promise you that if you have personal devotions every single morning when you get up, and that you read your Bible every day when you get up, and that you come to church every Sunday, that if you do that, there's never going to be a time of doubt. And can I promise you that every time that you go to speak to someone about Christ, that you'll never fear to do it, that you'll always be strong to do it? Can I promise you that? I can't, and neither did God. He's still working on imperfect humans. And we have this constant encouragement to do what's right and to live right and to pray and to seek and to fellowship and to witness for Him. And what is a major part of the ministry of the church? It's encouraging those who are already saved to follow Christ. 
Now, sometimes uh, we think that church is the place for 52 Sunday mornings of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. 52 sermons of go, 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 go. 52 sermons about evangelism for three, four, five, maybe ten people in the congregation that are lost. And so we preach Matthew 28, 19, and 20 all of the time, and we just have 52 variations of the theme. And folks, that's wrong. That's tragic. The church is the congregation of the saved, not of the lost. It's... it's it's not bad to have 80, 90, 95% of the people that are in the church hearing a gospel message, hearing about the things of Christ. It's not a bad thing if those people are saved. That's not a bad thing. And so we primarily preach in the church for those who are already believers in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to give them the simple gospel in every message that we preach. Now we do have to preach at times, but we're not to give people 52 sermons of this text. These are people that are already saved. And so they have to be prepared to serve, don't they? They have to be prepared. They have to learn. I mean, how much good is it going to do to send out people who don't know anything about the Word of God? So most of our services when we come here ought to be doctrinal. And they ought to be sermons about encouraging people to do what God has called them to do. Some doubt from time to time. Christians doubt. And they need to be encouraged. They need to go out, be encouraged to go out, to, to not just to be hearers, but doers of the Word. And this is the problem, though, that Christians that hear nothing but evangelistic sermons are weak Christians. Uh, I, I remember, I think I have it in my notes in a later message that I want to tell you when we get down to verse number 20, about two Baptist deacons from the soul-winning church that came to visit me one day and the discussion that we had about doctrine. And they were strangely ignorant of the Word of God, and they were deacons in the church. But we need to finish here today. Some doubted. Yes, there are discouragements. You're not going to be on top of your game 24-7, 365. You never have an excuse to doubt, and I'm not giving you one. I just know that it's going to happen. God saved your unworthy soul. You have seen great things. You have met Jesus Christ. But there is still doubt. Never think that the preacher doesn't have doubt. But the key to it is that I don't live there. I don't stay there in the doubts. Instead, I do the first part of verse 17. And you, if you are enthralled with the worship of Jesus Christ, then you will do what he's told you to do. Oh, it's a great commission. It starts with the engagement that they must go and meet Jesus. And when they obeyed him, they saw him, and they were enthralled. And if you obey him, and you worship him, then you'll always be amazed in the presence of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now admitting our feebleness, our inabilities to do anything that you've called us to do, unless that great power and authority gives us the strength to do it. Lord, I pray that you would help your people to depend on you, to give ourselves to you, to follow the command to do what you've told us to do. Help us, Lord, in those times of difficulty and discouragement to always look to you. May we not be deceived into thinking that this is going to be an easy thing for us to do. 
But neither do we worship you because it is easy. We worship you because you are God. Because you are God. And that's all that needs to be remembered. You've told us. And so we need to obey it. Lord, bless your people today. We do pray if there is anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, that this great commission tells them how to come to know you as the Savior of their souls. Lord, help us to give that message and help us as Christians to be obedient to your command. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.